ACNFers. Shout out to Athletic Brewing. That dry January time of year is fast approaching. And if you want to give it a go, visit athleticbrewing.com. I'm a brand ambassador, so if you use the code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. I just get points towards merch or beer of my choosing. Uh, But that's it. Go give it a try. Some of the best non-alcoholic beer I have ever had. And since I have a teensy bit more time, not a lot, but a teensy bit, if you leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, I'll give you a complimentary edit of a piece of your writing of up to 2,000 words. Once your review posts, usually within 24 hours or so, Send me a screenshot of the review to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com and I'll reach back out to you and we'll get started. Who knows, if you like the experience, you might even want me to help you with something a bit more ambitious. You know, I, I think that the the voice of a piece has to serve its structure and its function and subject. Hey, CNF, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast. Show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. What's up? Today we speak with Emily Fox Kaplan, who headlines issue eight of Pipe Wrench Magazine. It was produced in partnership with Sunday Long Reads, and Kaplan really channels the travel writing vibe of David Foster Wallace, even Susan Orlean, in this piece. It's titled Searching for. Zara Hemla, Avan the Yucatan, Five Latter-day Saints, and The Malleable Nature of Truth, an account written by the hand of Emily Fox Kaplan. Now, if that doesn't sound DFW-ish, I don't know what does, but get this, Emily has not read any David Foster Wallace, so she was, and she was largely influenced by the Book of Mormon for this. Kind of wild, wild piece. Anyway, Emily lives in Brooklyn. Her writing and photography have appeared in publications, including the New York Times, Guernica, and the Washington Post magazine. In this conversation, we talk about her feature for Guernica, if I'm pronouncing that right, I don't know if I am, about a Guatemalan migrant, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, uh, uh, named Antonio... Safin Kumez, who died of COVID in April 2020. I dug this feature a lot when I was doing a little research on Emily's work, and you'll find a link to it in the show notes. Uh, we also talk about voice and how it isn't universal and should shapeshift depending on the piece you're working on. Influences among Janet Malcolm and Rachel Aviv, also Susan Orlean, and maybe the best hot sauce in the world. Got another written review here. I'm going to share this. And if I get new ones, I love to read them right here. Give you the shout out you deserve for being so kind with your time. This is from Geology26. Hi, Rachel. Great interviewer. I love the freewheeling discussions that Brendan specializes in. You can go from craft to content to structure to revelatory comments in a CNF podcast. His focus on the craft of storytelling makes this a required podcast for every writer. Thank you very much for that. So Emily, before becoming a journalist, she taught elementary school in Boston and the Western Highlands of Guatemala. She's working on a book of reported nonfiction on Protestant Christianity in contemporary America. 
did I did I do this faster? I think my intro got tighter. Who doesn't like that? Stay tuned to the end of the show for my parting shot and a teaser for the next volume of Casualty of Words. But for now, here's episode 347 with Emily Fox Kaplan. Hook. I think it really depends on the piece that I'm working on. You know, I write both personal essays and reported journalism. Um, And my process is pretty different for both, I would say. But for both, I think I spend quite a while in the kind of generative phase, really letting my mind just kind of mull the material for a while and and have the piece kind of take shape in my head before I even start writing. Um, So for for this piece, I think the one that we're going to be talking about today, I actually got COVID at the very tail end of that trip. And Mm. I was stuck in Mexico City for 10 days by myself in an Airbnb which was intense, but I will put in a plug for Mexico City as a wonderful place to get stuck. It was actually good for the piece, I think, because I knew I wasn't going to get started on the writing because I was not up to that. Um, And my head was just kind of like working through the piece. And I think, you know, it's it's a pretty complicated piece structurally and formally. And different in many ways than than pieces I had written before and so it needed that time to kind of just sit there and kind of make its own connections at kind of the subconscious level um, before I could sort of consciously dive in and begin to really shape and, and wrestle with with the material but in terms of a kind of like daily routine I don't think I have anything that interesting <laughs> to say about it other than that. I mean, I, I know I've sort of given up on writing in the mornings. My brain doesn't work in the morning for this kind of mm-hmm. thing. I have a side hustle that requires less creative energy that I do in the mornings. So I think I've just learned as I've sort of gotten into the rhythm of being a, a professional writer of just not forcing it uh, when it's not there and just seizing on the kind of mindset when I do have it, when I am in that kind of space to really dive in. Nice. And now I understand for for some time you were a teacher and you've made the pivot to being being a professional writer. Uh, What was that? You know, maybe take us to that crossroads where you wanted to make that pivot. You know, as I said on the Sunday Long Read podcast, um, and I want to give a shout out to Sunday Long. They're wonderful. And they co-sponsored the, the reporting um, and publishing of, of the piece, Searching for Zarahemla. I, I always knew that I had two passions. Well, I have a lot of passions and creative pursuits, but I had two um, areas that I, I thought I wanted to do professionally, which was work with young children and write. For some time in college, I considered trying to really meld them, like write picture books. Uh, But that's not really, I think that didn't quite satisfy. I I sort of explored that a bit, but that didn't quite satisfy either 
either one. And so I decided to go into teaching. I taught uh, kindergarten, first and second grade over about seven years and right on the side. Um, but it wasn't really quite clicking as a career, even though I loved the actual teaching. Um, other things about the teaching profession just weren't really working with for me. And at the same time, I, I started realizing that I could start writing about education. And I had a lot of thoughts about education. And so I started writing, writing op-eds about teaching and education. They started getting picked up um, by places that that I was getting a lot of visibility and people were really paying attention to my ideas. And I thought, maybe, maybe there's a there there. <laughs> and so I started, it, it hadn't really occurred to me that I would ever be a journalist. I thought I would always be an essayist or a, a novelist or something, um, but journalism had never occurred to me. You know, I went to college with a really good student newspaper and in retrospect, I think I probably should have <laughs> been involved in that and stuff. Yeah, it was really when I was kind of realizing that education as a career was not a good fit, even though I love it. And at the same time that I really started to get a lot of positive feedback um, from my kind of journalistic type writing that I started to think, huh, maybe, maybe this should be, maybe I should kind of invert my original plan was to teach and write on the side is to write and find other ways to to work with children, which is what I do now. Like when you were when you were starting up, you know, if being being a freelancer, it can be hard to get that flywheel moving and then to keep the reservoir full. So you know you can sustain yourself in those periods when you're waiting on checks and stuff of that nature. So how did you get it? How did you get your first momentum where you felt like, oh, this can be sustainable? I mean. It's not sustainable, frankly, even now. You know, I work other jobs um, to support myself. I think that people who are interested in this profession know, or people who are in it know that, that writing is an almost impossible way to support yourself unless you're a staff writer or a professor um, or a, you know, multi-million time best-selling writer. Yeah, and I think people going into that should sort of be clear-eyed about that. Um, so at this point, I do have have other jobs. You know, in terms of momentum, I just started, you know, thinking of of ideas that would make good pieces, and I started pitching them out, and I got some breaks. You know, my first education op-ed was published uh, by the Washington Post, and that got you know attention, and then I could say that. I had been published in the Washington Post and people took me a little bit more seriously after that. And then that kind of built on itself, you know, so now that I have a bunch of um, publications that I can point to and say, look, I've done this and this and this people, editors, you know, have have more faith in me. Um, but it's it's hard work, you know, yeah. and it's it's not a good way to to make a living. Yeah, I know. And any number of times over my very uh, objectively unsuccessful freelance career. I've been a, I've been, a, I mean, a landscaper where on my lunch breaks, I was making reporting calls. I was stocking produce and whole foods uh, and, uh, you know, working any number of retail 
jobs, uh, menial retail jobs that took a lot of time and energy away from things that I really wanted to do. And I think it's important to underscore that, like hearing that, you know, you've got very prominent publishing credits and yet you're still having some other other mercenary gigs on the side to help subsidize it. So um, maybe maybe you can just kind of uh, speak to some of those other gigs that you do to kind of keep the lights on so you can keep affording to be able to do this. And then hopefully maybe this becomes the, the primary thing. Right now, I am an editor at an investment firm, which is a super great gig. I know I know a lot of of writers, um, especially in New York City, um, who do this. And, you know, editing in general is great and a consistent way to to earn money. Um, I've had an ongoing relationship for years now with a publication called Edutopia, who I love and admire tremendously. And I have edited on and off for them since I jumped off into full-time freelancing. And that's been wonderful to write for them, to, to earn their trust as an editor. And also because they, they cover education and they're written um, for and, and largely by teachers, um, I'm able to still sort of have at least a few fingers still, if not a whole, you know, a few toes, if not a whole foot in that world <laughs> of teaching and education. And I also do some tutoring um, on the side. I do different different things to, to keep myself afloat, but I certainly do not live in, in luxury, but that's fine. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I, and uh, you know, when I was reading some of your, uh, some, some of the backlogs, it just happened. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of things here. Let me just kind of pick a couple things. And I happened to pick the two that were actually sort of of, of the same, two of, uh, on the same coin if you will, um, you know, the life and death of Antonio and also the personal essay that kind of was a prequel of sorts in terms of the publishing timeline where you, you wrote like pretend nobody died, both are for Guernica. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just, I was really like kind of struck by the one that was more of a, uh, one that was a profile of Antonio, who's a, you know, migrant who passed away of COVID, uh, you know, had the. Right. Antonio Sakhin-Kumas is his whole name. Yeah. You know, in, in what way, like, how did you know at one point that you were like, oh, yeah, this is this is someone I deeply want to profile to um, to illustrate something and maybe the fallacy of uh, of the American dream and the perils of it and the trappings of it? Yeah. So I'll just for for readers who haven't read it, um, which is most people in the world, um, the piece that I think you're that, that you are referring to is called The Life and Death of, of Antonio Sakhin Kumas. Um, and it is about a friend of mine, Don Antonio, um, who was a source of mine. So I, I've written a fair bit about um, immigration. I, I lived in Guatemala when I was teaching, and I go back there at least once a year, sometimes more. And I've done a fair bit of reporting about, about Guatemala and about immigration from Guatemala. In the course of, of my reporting, uh, a piece I got to know Don Antonio. Don is the sort of honorific in, in Guatemalan Spanish. Um, and I got to know him and we became friends um, in, in New York. He's an old, he was older. He um, was in his 50s. We weren't super good friends, but we texted um, every month or so. We uh, texted about current events, what was going on in our lives. And he died of COVID in April 2020. Um, and I 
he, he died after a, a protracted battle um, in a Brooklyn hospital. And, and throughout that time, I was his family's intermediary um, because they, they don't speak English and they, they don't have any connections in, in New York and they don't know how, how the American medical system works, et cetera. But they, are, they live in a small indigenous village in, in Guatemala. And um, I really became emotionally entwined with the family and you know, the story of Don Antonio is, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that he had to leave Guatemala in the, in the first place, um, that our, that, uh, the United States screwed over his country <laughs> in so many ways for so many decades. He wanted a, a better life, uh, for himself and for his family. And because of our profoundly unjust society was, was not able to to get that. Um, and he wanted to write a book. Um, he was a very, very smart, academically oriented man. Um, and he really wanted to write a book warning other Guatemalan migrants not to come. And that the American dream, which is so famous in Guatemala and is such a motivator for so many people to migrate, never able to, to do that. And, and I began to discuss the idea with his wife and one of his daughters, who's become a good friend of mine, um, the idea of writing about his life as a way to honor him um, and to, to, to write that message, not in a way that he could have, but to, to get that message out that his life story shows that for at least someone like him, it is not possible to, to accomplish the American dream as it's often talked about. It was an, an honor to write that for my friend. And it was also a, a story that was being undercovered in all of the COVID coverage about undocumented people and what it means to be one of the most vulnerable people in this society during this, the pandemic in the very first part of it, when everyone was so overwhelmed and scared and vulnerable. You know, like looking at, uh, you know, your your body of work, too. And, you know, just I'll, I'll preface this by saying, like, I'm drawn to particularly obsessive people, mainly because I wish I was a bit more obsessive and singularly driven. And so some and I wonder, like, for you, just in the in the stories that you're drawn to, like what they might say about you. Yeah. I, you know, m my favorite journalist probably ever is Janet Malcolm. And she was definitely obsessive. Um, she, which I 100% am as well, for for ways that I, are both beneficial and and not beneficial for me. But Janet Malcolm was very obsessive, and she had themes that she was obsessed with her whole life, like um, psychoanalysis and the ethics of journalism, kind of meta journalism and photography. Um, and I am also obsessed with photography. And they're very interested in, in psychoanalysis and psychology and therapy and other related kind of disciplines. You know, I, I admire her so much because she was very obsessive, because she thought so deeply about the people that she was meeting in very deep and kind of surprising ways. And let people, she, her, her work 
lets people speak for themselves, but very much filtered through her incredible intelligence and sort of sharply honed way of, of seeing the world. And I also admire um, Rachel Aviv, um, who deals really well with nuance um, and who digs all of her stories could be written one way and she never goes for that way. She always goes for the deeper, more telling, much more complicated version of what she's covering. And I admire that tremendously. So I think, you know, that's, I think in my life and in my work, you know, my writing is is an outgrowth of my way of thinking. There's no way around that. I'm always trying to understand structural forces behind individuals' lives, seeing people and the world with as much of a finely tuned grayscale as as possible, as opposed to, you know, in black and white or sort of morally clear ways. And, and tr I try to see things, I try to sort of make connections among things that feel resonant in some ways, but aren't, it's not always immediately clear why. And I think that that Malcolm does that, Aviv does that, of course, Joan Didion does that. I, you know, I, I have this kind of pantheon of female nonfiction writers um, who just, they all happen to be female. I just, who, who I just really, really admire for their perspicacity and, as you say, kind of obsessive drive to, to dig deeper and deeper and deeper until complicated and really emotionally and and ethically freighted stories now with malcolm I, I suspect that many people who hear her name they just like oh the journalist and the murderer like that's the thing that she's most famous for maybe what are some other pieces by her that you're particularly drawn to that maybe not everybody else is aware of she i i just was going back recently soon after she died and was reading some of her profiles and she's just, she's brilliant. She's so fucking funny, too. Like, she's so funny. <laughs> yeah. She wrote a piece that I think about a lot, a profile of Rachel Maddow, which structurally is really creative, speaks to kind of the self-invention that Rachel Maddow has done. And I, I like and, and respect Rachel Maddow, but it, it uh, tremendously. Um, but this piece sort of gave me a different kind of lens onto what it means to be a professional personality in the way that that Maddow is. And, you know, her, her profile of Eileen Fisher, which I think is brilliantly titled, Nobody's Looking at You, which is something her mother said, which is, of course, you know, the antithesis of what a designer wants to hear. Her, her portrait of um, a pianist who, um, I am forgetting the name of <laughs> Oh, later. Uh, the name of the piece that Emily is referencing here is Yuja Wang and the Art of Performance. The piano prodigy is known for the brilliance of her playing and for her dramatic outfits. August 29th, 2016. And I've thought of that, too. I've One of my most recent obsessions has been getting back into playing classical piano, which I used to do pretty seriously as a teenager and haven't done in 20 years. And as I've been getting back into playing and thinking about music and performance, I've thought so much of her profile of, of the pianist and the insights that she had about music, even though music 
to my knowledge, was not one of her lifelong obsessions. She just had a way of digging deeply and understanding narratives that people create about themselves and different vocabularies and grammars of life that people um, use. I love that. I love like when you really like lock in to a particular writer and you can just like, it is just like they're, you're like, I want to find a way to unpack what they're doing and like just try to at least do like 1% of what they're doing. And it's just like the constant, it's, it's like, it's like the chase and you're after it in everything that you set out to do. I I love it. (laughs) I don't know if that's how I approach it. I don't think I, I try to sort of like be like my heroes in a conscious way I think they their writing just and their intelligence and their way of understanding things just inform my own so I think certainly they've influenced me but I I don't think I ever think like oh I want to write a piece like Janet Malcolm say I want I want what I write to have its its um you know its verve its it's acuity, it's, you know, smartness, all of that. Well, I think kind of what underscoring what you're saying is, is, is finding voice and specifically your voice and how those influences uh, influence uh, your own voice when you approach the work. So maybe you can speak to that and how, how did you cultivate your own voice, which this will dovetail into your pipe wrench piece because that is kind of voicey in a lot of ways. And I want to maybe get a sense of how you developed yours by incorporating, let's, the Malcolms and the Avives and then developing something that is wholly, you know, uh, Emily Fox Kaplan. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know um, to what extent I want to say that I have like a voice I certainly find myself comfortably writing in a certain kind of journalistic voice um, that I feel comfortable with and I like um, and comes naturally to me and certainly when I'm out reporting I begin to write in that voice in my head as I as I write, you know, I mean, as I report, um, and I kind of see, oh, this, this would fit in this way. This is how I would describe this. And it's, I I would say that's probably my voice more than, more than anything else. But, you know, this, this piece that I just published in Pipe Wrench is very different from that. And I've written a personal essay that's deeply meaningful to me, arguably more me than anything else I've written that's written in a very different way. And I'm, I'm starting a different essay now that is also very different. So I think I'm always trying to, to, to write in different ways and in different registers. And, you know, I, I think that the, the voice of a piece has to serve its structure and its function and subject. And so I hope that I don't get locked into any particular voice. Right. You don't want to... Like from the get go, be like, oh, that that's an ACDC song because they just play that same chord over and over again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like or Green Day. You're like uh, bands I both love. Right. But it's just like it's right. just un- they're undeniably like, oh, OK, from the minute they hit a chord like, oh, I OK. I, well, I know what I'm signing up for. It's going to be probably pretty catchy, but I under I, I just get that tone. And that totally. is all, always them. 
<laughs> right. And I think that's, I mean, I was just trying to think like, are there musicians that I admire that might be kind of analogous to, to what we're talking about? And my, my all-time favorite musician is Joni Mitchell. And I'm thinking all of her songs have you know, this beautiful poetry to them. And of course, that beautiful voice of hers. But but she really has tremendous range. Her songs aren't all alike in any way. Certain albums are have a sort of coherent voice, which I think is beautiful and and necessary for albums. But over the course of her career, you know, she she sang and wrote in so many different ways. Um, and it's like, yes, they're all characteristically her in that her her thinking and musicality and and poetry and way of seeing things and describing people is is inherent, excuse me, to all of her songs, but I wouldn't say that they're all in the same voice. I mean, they're literally all in the same voice, but in, in what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So how did you, uh, with the, with this pipe wrench story, like how did you arrive at this story and how did it come onto your radar? And you're like, oh, this is, this is something I, I want to tackle. So I wrote, I, I reported and wrote a piece in last year, uh, 2021, um, a much more straightforward piece about uh, the future of liberalism within Mormonism. Um, and I got really obsessive about researching this world that's not mine and this culture that is not mine. Um, and I had to to do a lot of research to to get kind of conversant in this religious culture, institution, theology. And so I had to learn a lot. Um, and I you know, along the way, I learned about this phenomenon of Book of Mormon tours, which is what I wrote this latest piece about. Um, and so it was really an outgrowth of this other piece that I had written. And then the response that, that that other piece got where a lot of Mormons were talking to me and I was sort of processing these various trends that I think are really interesting within Mormonism. And so really it was just an outgrowth of, of this kind of uh, obsession that I developed in service of this prior piece. And with this piece too, there's uh, something to be said about, um, about style and being in, in a sense, it's right from the get go, you know, it's going to be, it, it feels it's very writer forward, even to the extent of, you know, basically the subtitle of it, you know, it's like, you know, blah, 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 an account written by the hand of Emily Fox Kaplan. And uh, that could be an editor choice versus a you choice. But um, I, no, that at was what a point did that you was a mean choice? <laughs> that was that a me choice cho okay. um, that I that I pushed for because it's a play. You know, it's 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 a signal to Mormon readers that this is, you know, a deep reference to the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon is an account written by the hand of Joseph Smith. So, um, you yeah, know, I was true. getting to the idea that I am writing something in that vein and in that tradition, which is, you know, I understand it an ambitious thing uh, to, to attempt. Um, but that, yes, I, you know, the, the piece is about really the power of literature when it comes down to it, you know, and, and the power of writerly decisions. The Book of Mormon is what it is because it is really a tremendous work of literature and, and very complicated 
and and yes so i was i was very explicitly nodding to that you you say you know it's uh, about writerly decisions the power of writerly decisions and even in the early goings of it too you know you like suggest these these headlines like avowed atheist joins mormon tour in mesoamerica in name of journalism and then like this this little ira glass imitation too which is like very it's a very writer writer decision it's also very stylistically forward what was the the mindset and the approach to that just as you as the writer thinking like this is the the risk and the and the fun i'm looking to have with a piece of this nature right well you know those early parts of the essay where i kind of turned the prism in terms of how to open the piece is is making a point structurally that that all pieces of writing can be written in different ways. <laughs> and those different ways serve very different ends and have different effects and speak to different readerships. And so the piece is about a retelling, basically, of Mayan history. You know, these people who believe that the Book of Mormon's events happened in Mesoamerica believe that the Book of Mormon is is the true history, and you know, secular, widely acknowledged histories of the region are incomplete, and they are rewriting it. Um, and so, I wanted to speak to that um, in addition to talking about the ways that the Book of Mormon is is operating on many levels, literarily, um, and Joseph Smith. It's doing a lot there with, with his with his choices. I, I wanted to, to speak to that both explicitly and and through the structure. And with the the group that you were traveling with throughout you know Central America here was uh you know what was the Mexico yes sorry and and you know what was the the experience like uh, you know in reporting on them but also you know trying to. Uh, I guess it, it could have been very easy to like cut them off at the knees and make them look bad. Uh, but I think you do treat them with, you know, I think you just lay them out there and you treat them with a certain measure of repertorial empathy. And I just like, I just want to get a sense of how you approached, you know, reporting and interviewing them and treating them uh, fairly. People are, are worthy of respect, even if institutions that they're a part of aren't. I think that that individuals always are, um, and I think that individual people um, are generally much better than than the institutions they're a part of. And, and also, in some ways, right, this is a wacky endeavor, like going and retelling um, this, you know, the history of Mayans in in Guatemala and Mexico. But it's also very serious. I mean, the the real world ramifications of this way of thinking, I would argue, is responsible for the colonization of most of the world. You know, not specifically by Mormons, but by the idea that you can tell the story, you can know, and you and you can tell the story of people that are not you. Is I mean, that's very serious, and and and. I think needs to be treated seriously. The the piece also had a had a this David Foster Wallace on on a cruise kind of uh, vibe uh, to me, like you know, it, it, like you are very much this outsider coming into this other world, and you're just gonna go on this trip and, and report back to it. Uh, was that a particular uh, 
a model that you were, had had in your head to be like, oh, this is you know, c- could be like my my cruise piece. <laughs> I have actually never read David Foster Wallace, which I am embarrassed to say, um, and I did not know about the existence of that essay, unfortunately. So th- no, <laughs> it was not sure. that was not a model because I didn't even know about it. But I mean, certainly I'm aware that there is a a long tradition of of travel writing and and road trip writing and. You know, one writer who I who has been very influential to me since I was a teenager, who I didn't mention earlier, is Susan Orlean, um, who does a lot of that kind of like go to some wacky place, you know, and and um, write about wacky people, um, which I think is not a completely fair way of characterizing what she does. But, you know, she'll go to something an event or she'll accompany people doing something that most people don't know about. You know, um, one of her earlier collections of profiles is called The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, which was very influential to me as a teenager. And she profiles this female bullfighter, which is not a world that I certainly am familiar with. And, you know, presumably most readers of her work will not be. So in, in some ways, yes, I see that as a tradition that this piece is speaking to and 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 part of at the same time that it's it's you know writing about religion and writing about about literature and the power of literature as well. It seemed like the one moment in the essay where you like actually connected with with anybody was when you expressed uh not wanting to uh you know eat animal products for for because you didn't want to sort of contribute to the uh the the cruelty of of that of that system and uh you know was that something that kind of surprised you that that was like of all things that that was the thing you were that kind of like caught someone's ear and it's just like oh I, I actually get that 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 makes sense to me I wrote about this in the essays that it it was more that the guy that I call Matt, that I give the pseudonym Matt in the piece, had shown no respect toward me and myself or my beliefs or my way of life before that point. And so when I um, said that I am vegan, it sort of struck him. The way that he understood it was that I have a set of rules that I live by and and adhere to them. And that is something that he can identify with, even though he his rules are, are different. Um, you know, as a strict Mormon who, you know, doesn't drink coffee, doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't do lots of things that non-Mormons do in our society, you know, the idea of not doing something because of your belief system is something that was familiar to him. Um, but but he only respected it, I think, because it was he, he had constructed that kind of narrative for himself. You know, he he certainly did not respect the fact that I'm an atheist, <laughs> you know, or, or yeah. other things about me. Yeah, because you know, I've been you know, plant based for years and it and my very uh, omnivorous you know, father in law. He uh, like he telling my wife and I is just like, oh, like, you know, veganism is kind of like kind of like religion and we're like mm-hmm. we're like pump the brakes on that but in a way it really is because there is a certain set of values that you adhere to that really shape your decisions and the way you move through the world and it's like oh wow i guess in a lot of ways it kind of it kind of is 
like that. So I, I can uh, totally see right? that. Yeah, I mean, I I'm Jewish. I you know the the cult the idea of of keeping kosher um, is very familiar to me. It's something that my you know forefathers did, and some of my extended family do. It's um, yeah, the idea of restricting your eating because of your beliefs, you know, is certainly out there in in, in the world in in different ways. I've always thought since I became vegan at this point, like eight years ago or something, that it feels to me like keeping kosher in a way that's deeply meaningful instead of arbitrary, which is, you know, people who keep kosher would not describe it as arbitrary, but that is always how I've thought about it. So in some ways, I, it's, it's almost helped me understand the people I know who keep kosher because I also have dietary restrictions, which are, are deeply meaningful to me and, and make, complete sense to me and are in line with my life philosophy. Yeah. And in this piece too, uh, you know, what were maybe some of the central questions you were after when you, when you embarked on this, on this journey? Uh, And, you know, were those, were those questions answered? Did did you feel satisfied by the end of your trip? You mean when I embarked on the actual journey or the journey of writing it? Uh, let's go with the actual journey. I didn't really have particular questions in mind um, before I I joined this tour. I was really curious about how the people on my tour, who I assumed would all be white, which was correct, would interact with Mexican people, especially people with Maya. Um, descent because they, excuse me, the, the premise of the tour is that Mayan people don't know their, excuse me, their own history. So I was curious about that. And, you know, I, I noted some, some interesting things and it was kind of in line with what I expected, frankly. Um, but, you know, if my piece is about like the nature of truth and its relationship to narrative, I didn't really know that that was going to be the central focus when I started this trip. I mean, I, that was an idea that I had, you know, but, but the themes that I wound up writing about became clear over the course of my experience on the trip and then mulling it afterwards. Well, and, and towards the end of the piece too, it's just like, you know, you do the mock headline thing again. You're like, Emily Fox Kaplan goes looking for something. Not sure if she's found it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was yeah. was there anything in particular that maybe you were hoping to hoping to find and then it was just like, Well, I I, I don't I don't know if I did. I was hoping to, but I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I right, so I did the headlines as a nod to sort of a the idea that you can write things in a, in that journalistic way and that that is also very much a genre and a tradition. In terms of that, you know, I, I titled the piece Searching for Zarahemla. I think that, you know, when I was writing it, I don't know whether this comes through in reading, there's a kind of current, undercurrent current of um, yearning and searching and wanting and you know, that is such an integral part of religion for a lot of religious people, and certainly for writers and certainly for me. So I wanted that, 
you know, headline to kind of speak to that a bit. And when you were working with Michelle on this, who's, you know, she's been on the podcast before and, um, you know, what were, you know, when you were approaching the writing and the structure of the piece, you know, what were some of the conversations you were having to manifest the best version of it? I workshopped the first few, like mm, 3000 words or so of an early draft of this when I went to uh, the Breadloaf Writers Conference this summer. And um, it was pretty similar to how it is now. And people in my workshop who are wonderful, um, I want to shout out, the Lissicky group uh, wanted oh, pa- a lot. Paul Lissicky. Yeah. Uh-huh. Would that be Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Paul nice. Was, yeah, I've spoken to him a bunch of times. So yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's wonderful. He was. He was our instructor. People wanted more about my friend, the one who mm. I lost, um, and who I wrote about in the piece. Um, not extensively, but it's in there um, because thematically it's very similar. Um, and, and by lost, it's like you guys had something of a falling out, right? She just right, right. She didn't pass away or anything. Yeah. Right. No, she yeah. is very much alive. Yes. Um, but but our our friendship is not because, and I wrote about this in the piece. She created a narrative of me that I um, pushed back on, and and we have conflicting narratives of who I am, and as a result of our friendship um, and the way that we relate. And of course that resonates with the ideas of, of conflicting narratives in early drafts. She was much, much more present on the page, but Michelle sort of guided, guided the piece away from that for a few reasons. And I think, I think that that was the right thing to do for this piece. Um, I mean, I, I know it was the right thing to do, but I kind of could let go of, of that, of this piece being kind of half about that loss of a friendship. Um, and so Michelle's ability to help me kind of detangle myself from that sort of over em- emphasis of that in the piece was incredibly helpful. Now, earlier when we were talking, you said that this this particular piece for Pipe Wrench was definitely it, it pushed you in a different direction creatively in terms of the style and how, how you approached it. Uh, now that you've done this and stuck the landing and uh, where do you see some of your some of your writing going, knowing that you can flex this kind of muscle? You know, it it it's the first piece that's that's like fun and kind of playful in this way that's this long that I've published but I've I've written others I just haven't published them uh for for various reasons you know I so I I have a collection of essays that are more personal in nature um but also you know they look inward and they but they very much look look outward as well in the works about about uh the nature of truth and, and how we understand truth. Um, so, you know, I'm working on, on that kind of on the side, you know, it's, I don't have a book contract or anything for it yet. Although if anyone is listening, I would love (laughs) for you to give me one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like I have two writing lives in a way. Um, I have this sort of more playful, inventive, structurally, uh, yeah, (laughs) 
untraditional kind of work. And then I have more, more journalistic work. And I, you know, so right now I'm in the early stages of working on a book on um, Christianity in America um, that um, will be more in the sort of comfortable journalistic voice that I have come to, um, you know, be, be comfortable in and, and write quite a bit in. Um, but, but it's also pretty structurally inventive, you know, structurally kind of um, unusual. And so I'm having a lot of fun with that. But, you know, I, I, again, like I sort of, I, I fit the structure and the voice to the, the pieces that I'm working on. So I certainly like having the ability to have a lot of fun with pieces like I did with this and really, you know, have a piece be about like, you know, the, the relationship between narrative and truth. Like that's a, that's, that's so awesome to, to be able to do something like that. Yeah. And I hope that I just have more and more opportunities to have fun in a piece like that and kind of like play around in, in reported pieces. Um, this is the first piece reported piece that I've had the opportunity to do that. And I'm so grateful that Michelle was so happy as, as she, she said, swing high and, and I did. And that was, I, I'm really grateful that I could. So, you know, I hope to do more reported pieces in that vein, uh, but it's certainly something that I've been working on on my own for quite a while now because it gives me great pleasure. Nice. And uh, the one last thing I'd like to ask guests, Emily, as uh, uh, bring this airliner down for a landing is just a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And it can be anything. It can be a brand of socks uh, you're really excited mm. about, loose leaf tea. Jeez, uh, I, I don't know. A, a fanny pack. Uh, it can be anything. Right. So, uh, right. yeah. 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 So I, I, I extend say, that to you. Okay. I have two ideas. One is the um, newsletter of Ben Mock. I think I'm saying his name correctly. I've never heard him say it, but he's a journalist. He does fabulous stuff. I don't know him or anything. Um, I mean, I hope I do someday, but he is awesome. And I always love his newsletter because he writes about, uh, he lives in Germany and travels a lot. He writes a lot about um, China and he, he does really interesting work and he thinks really brilliantly about writing and reporting. So I would recommend his um, newsletter, which is called The Fugitive World. And then can I recommend something else too? Absolutely. Okay. I um, am obsessive about a lot of things. And one of the things that I'm obsessive about is hot sauce and spicy things in general. And um, I stumbled across this company called Mama Lambs at the Greenpoint Farmer's Market, which I want to put a plug in for because they're amazing. Um, I live in Greenpoint, love it. And they make the best hot sauce in the entire world. Um, it is the vegan Malaysian hot sauce. And um, they are based in Long Island City, which is right next door to me. Um, but they sell at lots of different farmers markets. Um, I sound like they're paying me to advertise them, which I, they are absolutely not. I'm just obsessed with them. And every time I make a dish for someone and include it, they love it too. And they're a little family company. I've looked them up because I'm so obsessed with them. So Mama Lamb's hot sauce and they make other sauces too. But I know I need to go to the Union Square Farmer's Market and, and stock up. Last year, I bought, I think, eight jars 
because <laughs> I knew I would run out and I almost have. So I'm going to get more. That's a, the the writer Ander Monson. He on his Instagram he does um, chip reviews, like reviews of potato chips of that, mm. all that he comes across. And mm. I think you need to start to be the hot sauce influencer of oh Instagram. Oh my gosh, I would love that. You know, my friend and I are going to do like she's also vegan. But we're going to do like a. It has been in the works for a little bit, but um, and it hasn't started yet. Uh, but um, a blog, a food blog around New York City and go to different vegan restaurants around New York City and write about it. And yeah, <laughs> so that will. But yes, it has not occurred to me to write specifically about hot sauce, which is one of my abiding lifelong passions. But that this is a great idea. You've given me something Fantastic. to think about. Well, I love it. Well, Emily, thank you so much for carving the time to come on the show and talk about, you know, writing and uh, some of your past pieces and, of course, this current one for Pipe Wrench. So thanks again for the work and thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for your podcast in general. Oh, thanks for making it to the NCNFers. Thanks to Emily for coming to play ball. Be sure you head over to brendanomero.com to sign up for my up to 11 rage against the algorithm newsletter. And also consider shopping around at patreon.com slash cnfpod. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. And if you like what you're hearing, please link up to the show. And if you tag me or the show, I'll be sure to swoop in there and give you some primo James Hetfield gifts. It's kind of what I do. I, my tenure putting together a little blurb and a shared transcript with long reads is over. I'm really bummed. Uh, but I guess the analytics didn't return on their investment in uh, cross-promoting atavist stories and, by extension, yield podcast. It did put the show in front of more people, and I got a f- few bucks every month for doing this for long reads, which was awesome. It was this nice little anchor gig, but that anchor is gone now. Super grateful for the opportunity, but I feel like I failed them. Like what other, like what, what other reasons are there to cut ties? You know, I've been beating myself up over it, but what can you do? It's beyond a rejection. It's more like a breakup. So now I need to go get out there get into dating shape and just put myself out there, buy some new clothes, get a new haircut, lose 20 pounds, CNF Pod is worthy of love. And in, 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 in all seriousness, I, I couldn't be more grateful for Peter Rubin and Longreads for putting the show in front of more people and taking a flyer on it. It was a lot of fun. When one door closes, another one usually stays closed. But maybe if you get some bolt cutters, you can break through the door and find the riches on the other side. So, all right, in lieu of a more fleshed-out parting shot... Here's a teaser for Volume 5 of Casualty of Words. is going to start in 2023. All right? So you're going to hear that in just a moment. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya. Well, well, well. Look what the cat dragged in. This is Casualty of Words, a writing podcast for people in a hurry. That's you. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? This is a little teaser of what's to come in 2023. I love this micro-podcast. I love that it's snackable. I love that it's like a shot of B12. Or the Baileys and whiskey you drop into your Guinness for a car bomb. 
I have an ambitious goal for 2023, and that is to make Casualty of Words a true daily podcast in one calendar year, Monday to Friday. A little shot in the arm that might be a little inspiration, might be a little craft insight, might be a breakdown of why a particular TV show or essay or book is so good from a writing point of view. So you might be able to take some of those notes I've gleaned and find a way to fold it into your own work. I love me some long-form podcasts and interviews and magazine stories and books, but sometimes you want something you can listen to and digest in the time it takes to brush your teeth. Of course, the goal is to make a tiny podcast that's of service and valuable, and if you ever want me to riff on something, by all means, send me an email. You can visit brendanomero.com. <laughs> to sign up for my monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter and to find ways to reach out so this show can be something that inspires you to pick up your pen or dust off that musty manuscript and finish what you set out to do. We're all in this mess together, am I right? That's Casualty of Words. <laughs> <laughs>